<laughs> Pray with me as we uh, prepare our hearts for God's word. God, speak to us today. Uh, speak to us as you just spoke to us through these, these worship songs that you remind us of your goodness, of the power and transformative uh, power of Jesus Christ in our lives. Lord, speak to us through your word. Let us not hear your words and say, oh, this is for somebody else today, but instead let us hear what you have to say to us even when it's hard, even when it's challenging, even if we don't know if we agree. God, we want to be transformed by your spirit. We open up our hearts to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is our last Sermon on the Mount series. And if you've been paying attention, we started this second week of January, and we've been going for the last three months and just taking a deeper look at Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the reasons uh, we did this is selfishly, this is my favorite portion of all of scripture, um, because it's, if, if, if Jesus invited me to a mountainside and just said, hey, I got some things to say, I'm going to be like, okay, I'm listening, right? And this is what he did with his followers, and we have these for ourselves here and now. Today we're talking about construction. And one of my favorite things on the internet is bad construction, Pictures of bad ideas, people who are skilled enough to build something but without the foresight to see why this version of it does not work. So let's take a look at some of these. Gotta love the balcony with no access. Like what? I don't, maybe they're gonna build a staircase to the next one? I don't know. Like, <laughs> what? Next one? Uh, oh, gosh. I thought of this. I thought of Neil Knutson when I saw this, riding his bike. Do not run into that pole. <laughs> Next one. Oh, gosh. This terrifies me. I'm afraid of heights, and just the fact that that door could possibly open and just fall into whatever that courtyard is, terrifying. Next one. This is great. This is great. You know what we need in the last three steps? We need a doorway, but we also need something to grab onto for safety. Next one. Oh, this, see, this hurts me as a short person. This is not okay. Whoever built this telephone, uh, you know, what is that called? A, a payphone. Everybody under the age of 35, that's a payphone. Before cell phones, you had to put a quarter in there and you could call somebody. But this was, you know, clearly meant to attack short people. Next. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Scott Ritter, I know. You're just freaking out right now. He's having like a, ah! <laughs> Next one. Where does this go? What, what, where does this go? This is terrible. This existed somewhere. Hopefully it doesn't exist anymore, but I, what's in that hole? That's where the bad kids? Okay, this is the bad kids slide. We have clarification. Good. Then, when the, then it's fine. It's fine. The design is perfect. Well, I think we have one more. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Oh, reverse engineering, you gotta love it. These, these people were clearly skilled enough to build something, but without the foresight to see the bigger picture in mind, right? They didn't, they didn't think, is this a good idea five years from now? They didn't think, is this going to last? They didn't think, is this going to lead to me being electrocuted or falling into a pit of darkness? They didn't think about it, even though they had the skill to build something. And that's what Jesus is actually talking about in the closing of the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about building our lives in a way that makes sense, in a way that has a bigger picture in mind. 
And so if, you'll, if you have a Bible, uh, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 7, and the words will be on the screen. Um, but, but these are the closing words that Jesus has in the Sermon on the Mount. He's just spoken for multiple chapters. We, we have it in chapter form in our, in our English Bibles. And, and this is how he closes. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who build, built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And I love these last two verses because it's like, that's Jesus' last thing, and then he just leaves. <laughs> when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. He leaves them with that. There's two ways to go. You choose. Peace, I'm out. Like, that's how he closes the Sermon on the Mount. He drops the mic, exactly. He finishes with a parable, but unlike some of Jesus' parables, this one is clearer. He's not, he, he leaves nothing to be confused here. The application for our life is obvious. And I think it's safe to say that when Jesus says these words of mine, you can, you can rightfully put the, apply that to the whole Bible, but specifically, he's talking about the, the sermon he's just preached. These words of mine. Matthew 5 through 7 is how we have it in our English Bible. So I would encourage you, after you hear this sermon today and, and think and pray on this, go back this week, maybe every day this week, and read that whole section, Matthew 5 through 7, just to be reminded of these words of Jesus and how we're to build our life upon that foundation. To summarize the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard me say this a couple times throughout this series, that the Bible scholars say that what Jesus is doing is he's giving practical wisdom about how to live out the greatest commandment. When he's asked what the greatest commandment is, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law hinges upon these two. And so the Sermon on the Mount is him saying, here is how you can love God and love others tangibly, practically, every day of your life. And when we build our house on this solid rock, what we're saying is that love is not just a concept or a feeling that we express, it's tangible. Because you go back and look at the sermon, it's not some private thing between us and Jesus. It's to be lived out in relationship with other people. Love takes a tangible form in our relationships. It's dem demonstrated, Jesus says, by acts of righteousness. To say, I love God, is not just to say, I love you, God, and that's the end of it. It's to obey what he's called us to do. Imagine you have a friend. Maybe this is real for you. It's not too much of a stress for you. But imagine you have a friend who, uh, you know, you go way back, but your friend every now and then, he'll tell you, I love you. But that same friend rarely calls you, is always leaving text messages on unread, forgets your birthday, cancels plans with you at the last minute all the time. He loves to tell stories about the good old days and reminisce about your friendship and what you did together. And that actually kind of bothers you because it's been a long time since you've created any meaningful memories with this person. The majority of your conversations, you know, tend to involve them trying to get something out of you. Anybody have a friend like that? This friend ne almost never asks, how are you? What's going on in your life? After a while, when that friend says the words, I love you, 
What's going through your head is the same thing that was going through your head of Anigo Montoya and the Princess Bride. Can we see this? You keep using that word. I do not think you know what it means. I do not think it means what you think it means. When, when this person tells me I love them, or they love me, what I say is, I don't believe you. You could say, I love you all day long, but when you never show up for me, when you never call back, when you're always trying to get something out of this relationship, but you never put anything into it, I just don't believe you. And that's a big part of what Jesus is saying here. To say, I love God and to love others is actually to, to make that real, to make that tangible. And he does this in a way that's very common. Jesus loves to use contrasts, right? He loves to say, there's two ways of thinking. There's two paths. There's, there's two gates, right? And this, this week, the, the contrast is in wise and foolish believers. And, and the contrast here um, sometimes has been interpret, interpreted in two different ways, two different other contrasts. And I want to kind of land on what do we think he's really trying to say here? Some people think um, that, the con- that, that what he's trying to do is say the storms of life are going to come and it's going to break you down if I'm not at the center of your life. That would be the, the storm of life theory. And then there's the storm of judgment theory. That when you get to the judgment, when you stand before God and he judges your life, if you built it on anything but him, what's left standing? And so I want to look at both of these things and see what is, what is Jesus really saying here? Is it, is it about the here and now or is it about the, the life to come? The storms of life view of this parable comes from a view that everyone will face difficulty. We will all at some point face hardship, struggles. And we could see it. it, it we, we can think of, of times in our life where it felt like our life was eroding around us. The, the, the storms hit us hard and we felt incomplete afterward. But this theory says if our life is focused on Jesus, we'll still stand up amidst that pressure. We won't be broken down by it. We will not be defeated. And I think there's definitely truth to this. But if this is true, if this is what this this parable is about, we have to be honest about what the foundation of our life really is. You see, often Jesus is a tag-along to our day-to-day life. We go to church Maybe we study the Bible, maybe we pray, but it's just, he's an addition. He's a sidekick to the rest of our real life. And there's many ways this takes shape. You know, in pop culture, it tells you that your romantic relationship is the, the most important thing. Find that one true special someone. And in the church, we have our own, uh, uh, you know, kind of working of that out too, where, where we make marriage the primary way that we work out our discipleship. And while there's some health to that, what happens for single people? What happens when your relationship ends painfully? What happens when you lose a spouse? If that's what your whole life was, it's not going to last. It will shake you. You will be crushed. And that's not to say that being in a romantic relationship isn't, is a bad thing. It cannot be the thing. Jesus must be. So that's one area of it. But what are, what are the other common ones? Money is a common one. Build our lives around money. And, you know, we'll take a good class. We'll take a Dave Ramsey class to say, okay, what are some good Jesus principles to apply to my money? But realistically, it's, it's easy to worship money. It's easy for that to be too central to our life. And then you have something like the 2008 crash, the market crash, and how many people 
their whole world came crumbling down. And if money is your idol, woof, pain, nothing left but sand. For some people, it's security and comfort. Um, and, and I live in Fremont, so I'm, I, I get this. You know, but this is why the suburbs exist. We want a safe place where we can live in peace and comfort and no one will bother us. The, the, the mistake of making this the foundation of our life, making security, safety, comfort the foundation of our life, is that it believes this lie that evil is only on the outside. But evil's in me. So it's going to be in my home no matter how nice my white picket fence is. No matter how high the gate to my community is. You know, one example of this that just... Uh, I just read about recently, there's a, there's a town, uh, one town north of where I grew up in uh, Ohio called Hudson. Hudson is the epitome of the American suburb. It is the wealthiest uh, city in the Summit County. And uh, they built high fences and it's all about safety, security, comfort. That's the motto of life in Hudson. Well, one day there was a huge string of arrests in Hudson, Ohio because a ton of soccer moms were abusing heroin. A street drug that we think is out there, right? Well, when the opioid crisis happened and people started cracking down, the government started cracking down on these illegal opioid prescriptions, these these acceptable addictions were now crimes. And so it didn't matter before if it was legal or moral or healthy. Um, It didn't seem like a problem. But now it's a problem because they're using heroin. And that's an extreme example, but that just shows that we can't protect ourselves from the world. There's only so much we can do because it's in us and it's in our homes. And our kids are going to experience it no matter how much we protect them. And that's important. Don't get me wrong. But it cannot be the foundation of our lives. One last example. This is the one that hit me the hardest, I think, as I was praying about this and writing the sermon. Achievement and success as a foundation of our life. You know, for me, that looked like to get out of the life that I was raised in, I need an education. So I got an education, and then I got more education, then I got more education, and I started to get degrees, and I was successful. For young people, you know, the the pressure to get good grades to, to get into the right school, to get that great job so that life can really begin for you then. That's the script of the achievement and success idol. And for parents, it's so easy to put that on your kids' shoulders because you want a great life for them. You love them. You want them to thrive. But, but sometimes they can't bear up under the weight of it. It's crushing. You know, one example that that made me go, oh my gosh, this is just a great example of the failure of the achievement and success. uh, Idol, the foundation for life. I was reading about a university that has openings for professors, PhDs, professors, and they offer no pay for these jobs because the market is so flooded with people with PhDs that they don't actually have to pay anybody. They can say, you guys compete amongst yourselves to see who gets your foot in the door, then maybe someday you'll be able to get a paid professorship. Oh my gosh, you know how hard people have to work to get through college, to get through master's degree, to get their PhD, to do all that stuff, only to say, not enough, come work for free. Oh, 
It doesn't deliver. The promise doesn't deliver. So these are just a couple of examples. But the reality is the storms of life will come, and if we build our foundation on anything else but Jesus, it'll erode. And what are we left with? We're left with sand. The second point of view is about eternity, the, the, the storm of judgment. And this one isn't very hard to understand. When we die, we will face judgment. Jesus just talked about this in our previous week. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but I will say, I never knew you. He's saying in our passage today that those who hear his words and live them out, they will have a foundation of faith in Jesus that will withstand the storm of judgment that is coming for all of us. Everything else will erode away, but that solid rock of Jesus will still be there. Those who hear his words and don't put them into practice will have nothing when the storm of judgment hits. Everything they built their life upon is eroded and there's nothing left. And he'll say, I didn't know you. In the end, when we're face to face with Jesus and he asks us to give account of our life, what will we say? Will we say, I had success in romance. I made a lot of money. I had a secure, safe, comfortable life. I, I achieved. I got the, the letters next to my name. I, I got the corner office. I got the title. No, Jesus is going to look at every one of those areas of the life. And, and the question that we ask if he's a tag-along, the question that we ask if we, if we have a different foundation other than Jesus is how can I fit Jesus into this? And Jesus wants us to reframe that question today. You decided to get married. If you don't and you want to stay single, there's a faithful way to do that too. But you decided to get married. Here's how you center that marriage on me. Not how do you sprinkle a little Jesus on your marriage. How do you center your marriage on me? Same thing with your finances. How do you, not how do I apply a few Jesus principles to my money. How do I look at my money and say, this is yours, Lord. It's all about you. Whatever you want me to do with it. And you can go on with all the achievements, all the other stuff. It's not about adding a little bit of Jesus into these things. It's, it's about seeing these things through the lens of Jesus as the center of everything. So that when, he, when, uh, when we look at him face to face at that judgment, he says to, to me, why should I welcome you into my kingdom? I'm not going to talk about my accomplishments. I'm not going to talk about any of these other things, these other uh, foundations. I'm going to say, because my faith, my allegiance, my life was built upon you. I wasn't perfect, but I was transformed by your life, death, and resurrection. You are my foundation, Jesus, and nothing else. That's the only answer that suffices. So, every foundation we build our life upon, other than Jesus, it's shifting and sinking sand. It will not stand the test of time. I think both of these things are true. Both the storms of life and the storms of judgment, because in the end... We've got to stand firm. I think it's both. Jesus wants us to live a full and abundant life here and now and for all eternity. If we want that life then, then we invest in it now. We build our foundation now. We hear his words and we put them into practice. There's one more contrast I want to talk about. Um, when, when we read these words, there's a little bit of a tension in our minds. And it's a classic biblical tension, a common argument throughout the history of the church, and it's this, being right versus being righteous. These types of sermons cause tension for Protestant Christians because so much of our identity is wrapped up in the idea that we're saved by faith and not by good works, right? 
And we give a lot of weight to what Paul says in verses like this in Ephesians. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But then we have to wrestle with verses like this from the book of James. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Well, what, are we, what, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> Who's right? Is it about being right and having the right beliefs and having faith in the right God? Or is it about being righteous? It's truly confusing, honestly. This is, there's a reason this is just always a debate within different denominations. But actually, when you look at these two verses, you realize that Paul and James are actually doing something very similar. But they're ministering to two different congregations. They're talking to two different groups of Christians. Paul is saying that it is God who saves us, not ourselves. So we respond to that with faith. The best translation of faith, in my mind, in the Bible, is the word allegiance. Faith isn't just having the right ideas and the right beliefs. It's saying Jesus, I'm responding to what you've done for me with allegiance. I'm yours. That's what faith means for Paul. But he says it's not about works, right? So how does that add up? Well, Paul, in all of these contexts, typically is, is talking to a, a, a controversy over, do I have to become Jewish before I can become Christian? Because as Gentile and Jewish Christians are coming together, there's, there's a group that's saying, yes, you've got to become Jewish. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to eat kosher. You've got to fully convert to Judaism, and then Jesus will save you. And Paul is saying, no. No, 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 no. That's not what faith is. Faith is allegiance. Faith is recognizing the gift that God has given and responding by saying, I'm yours. The rest of my life is about you from now on. And that's the same thing James is saying, except for he's actually pushing back on a group of people who think, well, all I need to, to be saved is to believe the right things about God. As long as my theology is right, as long as my doctrine is right, as long as I agree to certain truth claims, then I'm good. James is saying if your beliefs haven't transformed your life into one of obedience, then it, it's all up here. It's not genuine. It's not true saving faith. True and saving lasting faith, he says, will flip your life your values, your posture towards God and others upside down. It will change you. The reason I bring this up is because sometimes I think much of Christianity is much more like James' context than Paul's. Today's American Christianity, uh, we hear things like, uh, phrases like, you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. But too often that gets worked out into thinking, I have a private relationship with Jesus. It's just between him and me. It doesn't impact, impact much of my life. It's just about my soul. Not about my body or my actions, right? We're much more likely to break down Christianity into a set of ideas and a belief system than we are to see it as an entire life wrapped up in the life of Christ. There are entire denominations that are so obsessed with getting their theological ducks in a row that they disregard everything else. Our actions don't matter. Whether we love our neighbor or not doesn't matter. Our works for justice and mercy in the world don't matter. I've actually had seminary professors who know the Bible so much better than I do, but it was purely academic. They had a spirit of meanness, and they would just crush people in arguments who disagree with them cruelly, even on minor points. And I'm like, man, you sure know the Bible, but do you know Jesus? Dang. I, I'm, I can be this way. I, I have... A very specific, strong opinions about everything I believe. And I can get so attached to my own ideas of who God is and how he's working in the world that I can forget 
that the people who, who disagree with me are created in the image of God and should be treated with dignity and respect. James is saying, no, it's, it's more than just what, about what you claim to believe. It's more, more than just what you know. So which is it? Who's right, Paul or James, right? I don't think they're intention at all. What we believe is important. There is a right and wrong. There is truth, right? But if it doesn't lead to righteousness, it's not the full truth. We are called to seek God, learn his word, and believe in the truth of the gospel. And that truth must consistently, even, it's almost always slowly, it's almost always slow, but it works its way into every area of our lives. Lives that proclaim how right the gospel is because we demonstrate the righteousness it produces in us. It's not just what we know. It's not just what we take in. It's what we do. It must be lived out. So we need to hear these convicting words of James. We need to hear this warning from Jesus. It's not enough just to hear his words. It's not enough to have the right knowledge and beliefs. It must lead to transformation. Jesus is warning us. Let's not miss it. Let's not look away from it. He's challenging us. Let me read to you this passage in the message translation. This kicked me in the face this week. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life. It's like I said before, you just can't bring Jesus along for the ride. They're not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to, be, to build life on. If you work these words into your life, you were like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. Buckle up, everybody. Here we go. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you are like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach, and when a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. I hear this, and I'm convicted. If you just use my words in Bible study, if it ends there. I think this is tough because early in my faith, I was kind of told that that's what Christian faith is. You study the Bible and you pray. That's what you do. That's what makes you a Christian. That's what keeps the relationship with God going. But here's, when I read this verse, here's what it did to me. It gave me this fitness analogy popped into my head. Instead of his house, you know, construction thing, it came in a different analogy for me. It's like a guy who drinks three protein shakes every day, but never works out. But he expects himself to be a bodybuilder, right? Or it's like a guy, this is more like me, I wouldn't drink the protein shakes. It's like the guy who reads the instruction manual on how the treadmill works and watches YouTube videos of how to run, but never runs, <laughs> Or it's like this guy, Adrian and I started going to this gym once, and this guy, so was, was, the gym was fine, but like many gyms, they had personal trainers, and they were always trying to corner you and sell you personal training, which is fine. Many people benefit from that. It's awesome. But Joe kept cornering me and my wife, and <laughs> Joe was like, I'll get you into shape, and meanwhile, Joe had a beer gut, and when I would pass by the gym, the alley beside the gym, he was always smoking. I'm like, Joe, no thank you. <laughs> it's not enough to know how to be fit, Joe. You got to live it out, and I don't want advice from you. 
And as Christians, we sometimes do that. Our lives are a mess, but we want to tell other people how to live their lives by the truth of Scripture. Meanwhile, we're bloated and smoking cigarettes spiritually. (laughs) Sorry, Joe. Forgive me. If you ever watch this, Joe. I love you, Joe. Bible study and prayer are like the workout instructions and the protein. But we will not grow strong until we exercise our faith. Until we see it at work in the real world. Like I said earlier, this is a warning. I get a little emotional because we've got to take it seriously. There are some of us in this room, and I've done this at times in my life where I was just skating by. I checked the boxes of Bible study and prayer, but I was dead. Jesus uses this warning to get our attention. He's saying, you've got two options. One will lead to destruction. If you hear my words and don't work them into your life, it will not hold up in this life or the one to come. One of the pastors who's been hugely influential on me over the last six months and hugely influential on our leadership as we... um, Uh, make this shift, if you've heard us talking about making a shift toward being a missional church, Rob Wegner works with the KC Underground, and they have just done so much to help us figure out what this looks like in our context. And and we shared this at the Discipleship Pathway, this video, and I just want you to see this because it struck me. It it floored me, and, and we all need to hear these words. You know, I was thinking about that woman in South Africa, the older woman who's activated 10 groups. And uh, my dad, he uh, passed away. I was, well, how many years ago? Six years ago today? And shortly before he died, uh, I was sitting with him and I was sharing about my latest trip to India. And we had the privilege of being a part of this amazing movement where over a decade it ended up being thousands of microchurches, all led by ordinary people. There's a, there's a woman, we always tell her story. Um, and if you've heard me tell it, I apologize, but wherever I go, I'm going to tell Martha's story because she typifies, I think, why we're here. She's a stay-at-home mom in India, lived on an interstate where there was a lot of sex trafficking and a lot of sex work. And she would send her kids to school, get her motherly duties done, and the Holy Spirit was sending her to the sex workers. She knew that. She was being trained. There was what we would call a hub providing equipping for her to know how to plant the gospel and plant herself and she began to shop down there began to make friends with some of the sex workers took tea ended up planting the gospel starting discovery bible studies one microchurch emerged then two then three so here's martha a stay-at-home mom and within a year maybe a year and a half she was a network leader of a new network of microchurches right and i think of that older woman and her sitting there And now she's looking at this multi-generational, all these people discovering Jesus. And now my dad, shortly before he died, I was telling him some stories from India. And he looked at me and he said, son, I think I missed it. And I said, what do you mean, dad? He said, well, my dad met Jesus after a tragic accident. He had four buddies that carried him to Jesus that he played softball with. And he said, you know what, I I did everything I was asked to do. I was a Sunday school teacher. Uh, I was a deacon, I was an elder, I was a trustee, but I think I missed it. 
And that was a defining moment for me. Because I wonder how many of God's people are sitting somewhere, just like that older woman was, just like my dad was, and saying, I missed it. Like they, they actually have a masterpiece mission. They have a unique calling. It, their birthright to be a missionary disciple maker. They have the same power that raised Christ from the dead, and they're just being asked to open a door and usher and hand out a bulletin. Now, no disrespect. We are for all forms of the church, but we have a crisis on our hands when churches are filled with people who get to the end of their days, and, and many of them, I think, do say, missed it. And so what... That's, that really struck me, that, that, that story, because I don't want to miss it. And I don't want you to miss it. And the beauty is we don't have to. Whether you've got 60 years left or you've got one, you don't have to miss it. Let's not miss the fact that this parable we've studied today, it's not just a warning, it's an invitation to true life. When we call ourselves to discipleship, when we hear Jesus' call to build our life upon his word, we don't just do it because we've got a duty, we do it because it's the only way to experience abundant life here and now. It's worth it to allow Jesus and his words to turn our lives upside down. Because when we build our lives on him and his word, we will stand up to the storms that life throw at us. They're coming, we know that. We've experienced them already, but we will stand up. But we'll still experience full and abundant life. It's rich, it's fulfilling, and even when our life circumstances are trouble, it doesn't matter because it lasts, it's eternal. It cannot be taken from us. This is why we, we started the discipleship pathway. And this whole sermon wasn't just a commercial for the discipleship pathway, but I'm going to turn it into one right now. You know, about 45 of us went through a seven-week training for how we can hear God's word and dedicate our whole lives to practicing our faith in real and tangible ways, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools. God is on a mission to reconcile all things to himself, and he's called us to build our lives on his word and really live it out. And we want to take that seriously. We want to know what it looks like. And what we've discovered is it looks like accepting his invitation to join him in this mission. That's where life will be found. Many of us are actually gathering today. This is a reminder for you who signed up. But uh, many of us are gathering today for our first missional equipping gathering. This is an ongoing meeting of people who've gone through the discipleship pathway and have said, yes, I commit for a year to be an ordinary missionary right here where God has called me. Lunches at noon for you guys. Um, this is a group of people who've said, I want my life to be swept up into the life of God. I want my beliefs to go beyond my head to my heart and beyond my head and my heart to my hands. In tangible ways, I want to build my life on Jesus and his words. And so for application, I want to make this as simple as possible. Sign up for the next discipleship pathway. Discern with your brothers and sisters in Christ in this place what God is doing and how we might join him, how we might live out his words. April 25th, Sunday after Easter is our first one. Um, or is it 24th? I'm bad at math. Fourth, 24th. April 24th is, is our next discipleship pathway starting. 
Um, and it's going to be on Sunday mornings before church so that you don't have to like come back a different time in the week. We want to make it as convenient as possible. Set your alarms. It'll be okay. Um, but I, I don't want us to miss it. I want us to continue as a community to discern together what God is doing and how we might continue to build our individual lives and our church life on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that will last. The only thing that can't be taken away from us. Jesus has an invitation for us, an invitation to real, abundant, and eternal life. For you and for this church, let's accept it. Let's hear his words that we might know him in his heart and invest our whole lives into living them out. Pray with me. Oh, Jesus, thank you that you, thank you that you warn us. Lord, that you don't let us try to grab control of the steering wheel of our lives and just wreck it. You remind us, you convict us, your word brings us back to you. Thank you. It's challenging teaching that we, we've gone through in the Sermon on the Mount. It requires commitment and transformation, and we, we can do nothing but say we need you, Jesus. We cannot do this on our own. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Show us your ways. Give us the courage and commitment to follow you. Lord, thank you that it's not just a warning, but it's an invitation into your life. We want to experience life to the fullest. We want it now and we want it for eternity. God, help us to grab a hold of it. Help us to hear your words, to know you, to chase after you with everything that we have. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.